This podcast is a production of Phoenix Media. Explore more episodes of this show and other great shows on the Phoenix Media Podcast Network by visiting phoenixmedia.us. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the company or its advertisers and may contain language that's unsuitable for younger listeners. Welcome to the Dogish Podcast, the podcast dedicated to dog parents and the topics, events, and personalities impacting their lives. My name is Jason Arias, founder of Forever USA, the dog photography experience for you and the dog who stole your heart. And with me, as always, is Miss Sylvia Wess, uh, founder of Dog Up in This Bitch Dog Training. How are you today? I'm awesome. That was a deep I am, breath. Listen, I'm settling in for this one because we have a very exciting guest coming on and we are going to talk about homelessness. And I mean, we get we're we're getting deep today. Mm. I love I love the where you kind of the uh, aligned topics like we're, we're we're speaking with David, who's a veterinary surgeon. But we also got to talk about um, uh, homelessness animals like you brought up. We talked about. Um, well, we ended up talking about fence aggression and doggy treats and, um, what was cheese the, visits, cheese visits, but you're going to find out what that is. Yeah, yeah. It's like all sorts of cool stuff like that. So, um, let's, let's jump onto it. Okay. Perfect. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so excited to have you on this morning, Dave. Likewise. Super, Me too. super excited. Good to meet you. Yeah, yeah. Sylvia, this is David. David, this is Sylvia, my uh, uh, co-host. She's based Thanks, down Sylvia. in uh, Los Angeles. Oh, nice. Yep. Yeah. And um, David is based not too far from here in Carson City, like okay. 25, 30 miles away. And he is one of the most compassionate and caring people that I have ever met. And... Um, the reason that I'm super excited to have you on today, Dave, like, I, I think, uh, like my mom works in the medical community with people and we talk about bedside manner and all those kind of things. And it's something that works like we naturally expect with, with doctors and nurses. Um, mm. but I don't know that it's something that is necessarily brought up with, uh, the veterinary community as much like, obviously we want people to care for us and our animals and things, but, um, I know that when we started forever, we were trying to give a platform to people so that they could celebrate their families in the way that they feel their families. And you guys do the same thing in the, in the veterinary community. Like they're, they're genuinely family. It's not a catchphrase. Like, I know, like a lot of people are like, Oh, these are our fur kids. And it's kind of tongue in cheek, but it's genuine. And so that's, that's why I was excited. And, and you're a veterinary surgeon. Yes, I am. Yeah, and uh, my partner, my wife, and I just uh, acquired a veterinary practice 14 days ago. Congratulations! Cool, right? Yeah, super awesome. So we uh, we met in veterinary school in Scotland. We've been together since, and uh, we've been in practice almost 10 years. And this was like the logical next step of family and life and livelihood and our veterinary practice. So very cool. Right? Love that. Yeah. So tell me a little bit like on your take on being in the veterinary community, like having a practice, like what is it 
that you kind of see differently going into this or um, like what drives you as like your passion for people and animals? Yeah, I think one of the really strong motivating forces um, is the human animal bond. And the American Veterinary Medical Association has a really nice succinct definition that I'll read to you because my memory doesn't work like that. Um, They say it's a mutually beneficial and dynamic relationship between people and animals that's influenced by behaviors essential to the health and well-being of both. Mm. Yeah. Now I'm going to get emotional again. (laughs) (laughs) This is why, this is why Jason has me on. (laughs) Yeah. So I think, um, that's one of the things that we carry with us as we practice is that, um, you know, however people refer to their pets, whether it's their, you know, their hunting dog that works with them or it's their fur baby who cuddles up in their bed and shares pillows, they've got a deep connection and a relationship that needs to be honored and um, kind of central to how we interact with them and how we provide care. Mm. Yeah. And then, you know, motivations for whether it's someone's working dog or someone's house pet or, um, we were saying uh, pre-show, Jason, people experiencing homelessness often have pets as their sole companions. And, you know, that relationship, that bond that they share is no less deserving of respect and care than a family who can provide bottomless pockets. Sometimes more, right? Because they're getting to spend that constant time with them. Like they're not being neglected. They're not being, you know, put off just outside or like forgotten yeah. about. It's It's a constant in and out companion. And I think that's one of the things that's always driven me into the animal community is that our pets and animals, like they don't care about how much money we have. We don't care about what we look like. They don't care. Like they don't care about any, they don't care. How big your house is. How many likes we got on our last Facebook post. They don't care about any of that kind of stuff. They literally just want to spend time with us. Um, What is the, like we we were talking about that group a little bit earlier that like, can you tell me a little bit, because you're supporting them right now. Yeah, so I'm on the board of a, a organization that's based locally in Carson City called Feeding Pets of the Homeless, mm-hmm. and they have a, a national presence, and they do a, a couple of things. Um, I got involved with them kind of doing wellness clinics at uh, Friends and Service Helping here in Carson City with a few other local veterinarians, and uh, annually in the summer, they would hold a wellness clinic. The vaccines would be donated by a practice, and um, these people would just rock up with their pets, and we'd see probably... I don't know, close to a hundred each year. And it was often the same people. And I mean, you could tell that these animals were loved on and cared for. It Mm -hmm. might be that they didn't have, you know, the most stylish collars or things to go with them. And sometimes they, they lacked a bit of, um, you know, corrective care that could have been provided had they had the money to do so, but they were coming in for annual vaccines and a wellness check. And if we would find things that were out of line, we'd let them know and, uh, often there are resources there for things like uh, spaying and neutering resources that they could opt in and by and large, given the option to, they always did. Wow. So it's, it's uh, great to just see them and have them. What do you think some of the, very, like, like having that first-hand experience and not just like, cause there's going to be people that have made donations and there's people that are running, like there's all these different aspects, but on the veterinary side, like what are some of the misconceptions that people might have about the homeless with their pets? And that is an amazing question that we should tackle after the break. Um, So when we come back, let's really dive into this topic. I think it's uh, fascinating and 
really, really uh, shows deep empathy for, for our fellow humans and animals. So we'll be right back. So right before the break, um, we were just talking to David about um, homelessness and homeless animals and uh, kind of what he feels that role of veterinary community and our role is a little bit in that. So let's let's break that down more. Yeah, so I think one of the most humbling things for me was um, in providing care to these people and their animals, their animals were clearly loved deeply and honestly, the quality of life that they had with these people was sometimes better than what myself as a qualified veterinarian felt like I was providing my critters at home. You know, they're with them like 24 seven, they get to do things together and they were usually so well socialized just because Mm. they'd experienced life that, you know, car horns beeping or people with beards or whatever happened to rock up on them they were just like cool like seen it been there no big deal and um the level of appreciation for doing the same task i would do day in and day out at work was awesome you know it was clearly so much more impactful to these people in the bond they share with their animals than families that could opt to come and pay for it at any time interesting so like you just so you in some ways you thought that they were like almost taking better care than other people that maybe had the means to, but just would put it off. Yeah. And that's not, you know, intended to be a judgment against the average pet owner, but it was so clear that the resources that they had were put to strengthening and deepening this bond that they had with their animals. They're often the only companion that they had. And they were, aside from just a source of companionship, they're often literally security and safety for them, a source of warmth, you know, a, an anchor for their mental well-being, and a lot of persons experiencing homelessness, I think, kind of fall at an intersection of a lot of different marginalizations where they might be having some mental health issues or whatnot. And oftentimes, um, I think the bond that they have with their animals is what drives them to seek care for themselves, such that mm-hmm. they can show up and be present to care for them. Very cool. And I just think this just goes so far beyond. You know, that's what's so cool about this podcast. We get to talk to amazing people like you who just really are have a perspective that's beyond just like being a dog mom, being a dog dad, you know. And if I'm hearing you correctly, like you're not advocating that we should be taking these homeless animals away from their homeless parents and off the streets. And I think that there's a definitely a stigma around homelessness where there are people I live in L.A. There's you know, I have a homeless encampment on my street. Um, we have like five people who live here and they do have pets and I can hear the dogs barking in the tents. And I think in some of the rescue community here, there's this drive to like, oh my gosh, these poor homeless animals, we need to like take them in and give them a couch and a house. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, it's like, no, we should be supporting these families because they're a unit, they're a family unit. And and how do you propose we do that? Like, what does that look like if we're actually wanting to advocate for these homeless animals? What's your perspective? What does advocating really look like on a baseline healthy way? Yeah, I think from the veterinary side, it's fairly straightforward. 
added to that, it's so multifactorial. You know, it the person isn't experiencing homelessness for a simple reason. It's usually financial. It might be mental well-being, the housing market locally or whatnot. Um, one of the cool things that's happening is there's there's a number of organizations in North America that are kind of striving towards this. And a few of them have adopted a, a One Health approach. And what that is, is basically the integration of um, human health care, social services, and animal health care. So the idea is they kind of leverage that human-animal bond to say, hey, Fluffy needs her annual exam. You all ought to come on in, get her seen to. And then when Fluffy's there, they've got social workers who can say, how are you doing? Like, do you need access to these resources? Do you need an eye exam? Because you can't see shit, so you can't read help wanted ads like what what can we do to help and um i think often the, the people most able to answer that question are the ones experiencing homelessness you know they know what resources they lack better than than we do as vets we can show up with vaccines and vouchers for spay neuter and provide those sorts of things yeah wow awesome. that's yeah i mean this is i know there's every time after you talk i feel like i'm settling in from just receiving like mm -hmm. a world altering blow you know it's it's such a different perspective and i think it's one that just carries so much compassion and you know unfortunately and i know this to be true here in los angeles like our homeless shelters don't allow pets so some of these people like they would like to be sheltered they would like to have some place to be you know our housing rarely offers you know yeah. pet friendly housing and you know you have to be very wealthy to buy in los angeles so it's like you know, you can't rent, you know, if you have, if you need like assisted housing, they usually don't include a pet. So it's like, if knowing my bond that I have with my animals, like I would probably, and I've said this before, like I would live in my car before I gave up my dog sure. to live in a house. And I think like, maybe there are those people on the streets too. So what an enlightening topic. I'm just like, <laughs> again, <laughs> eight o'clock in the morning, mind blown. But I wanted to go back to something that as a trainer strikes a chord with me, which you talked about, obviously socialization uh, with these homeless dogs. And I just wanted to get your take. It's January. There have been a lot of dogs, doggos adopted and puppies taken in. I have one, I'm a guilty Christmas puppy owner. And um, what's your take on early socialization? Like because I have clients who come to me and are like, my vet said my dog's going to die if I take it outside before all of its shots. So what? Yeah. where do you stand there? Yeah. So that's a tough one. Um, I will say under-socialized animals is probably the bane of my daily practice existence in that um, the, the average pet owner isn't a dog trainer, isn't that savvy necessarily, and potentially hasn't sought the best sources of information about it. And their animals are under socialized. So they've never been examined by a vet till they come in and get a puppy series of shots. And that's terrifying and doesn't really set up a great relationship for being chill at the vet's office. And one of the cool things about um, basically any animal that just gets to live life is that they, they see things, they hear things, they smell things, they get to experience the whole spectrum that is out there. And um, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. I think their main socialization period where they're most sponge-like and receptive to all of this is is young. It's it's kind of like pre-vaccine six to 12 weeks-ish, something like that. And as a pet owner who's concerned about transmissible diseases, you can totally do all sorts of socialization and still protect them from 
Parvo is probably our big one in this area. Yeah. Yeah. And they make awesome like puppy socialization bingo cards where you can like tick off boxes of like dude in wheelchair, you know, cement truck backing up and you can totally expose them to all of these and be safe. So for me, like hearing you guys talk about this, this is, um, uh, in my mind again, cause I'm like, I'm a dog photographer. I'm not a tech or anybody like that. Um, in my mind, when I hear the word socialization, I've always thought of it almost strictly as just like going to a dog park, like just being around <laughs> other dogs and hearing you guys talk about it. Now it's like, no, 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 it's not, it's not socialization being around other dogs. It's socialization being out in the world. So it's new noises and new machines and new environments and new, like just really expanding them to all sorts of different experiences and the impact that that can have. Yeah. And Sylvia, please feel free to chime in. I'd also add, you know, interdog interactions is important, different species is important, but also your puppy learning that like not every dog is an open invite to come and sniff a butt is super important. Like not every dog is going to want you to come say hi. And part of socialization as well is just learning to ignore kind of the background of newness in the world. Yeah. And it's communication, you know, like it's the reason why we go to school and preschool, right? Kindergarten. That's all about socialization. You learn how to communicate. You learn how to share toys. It is very similar for puppies. They need that, that, uh, that backbone of like, Oh, this dog's turning its head away from me. I should walk away from it. But if you don't expose them, they're not going to learn that. And yeah, David, you're so right. That period for early socialization is short and it's early and, and, um, and I feel like a lot of times people have kind of a disservice done because their vets are so worried about, you know, these contagious diseases that they're steering people away from this early socialization period instead of providing options of like, well, you know, I partnered with a local trainer who does early socialization classes for puppies that are under vaccinated and it's safe, you know, mm-hmm. um, or go outside here, puppy bingo cards. So, um, you know, if as a vet, like, what would you say to the pet owner today? Like, Hey, this is something that you need to do. And what are, what are three options that you would give them for healthy socialization as a vet? Yeah, I think step one, we'd really like to integrate into our practice that those first puppy visits are, you know, more lengthy to offer conversation with the owner about what's the plan. Um, one of the things I most recommend them to do is pretend you're a vet at home, like crank their mouth open, look at their paws, poke their butt, like do all the things that's going to happen when they're with us so that it's no big deal when we whip out a stethoscope and try and listen to their heart. They don't think we're trying to like steal their soul or something. Um, Right. And a lot of people have access to family or friends that they know whose animals are vaccinated. And that's always a great avenue of, you know, intraspecies interactions there. Um, And, I wouldn't say that I've built a network of trainers and behaviorists locally, but certainly having those resources available to people to say, Hey, you got a young puppy. Yeah. There's this trainer down the road that does a young puppy socialization class for unvaccinated animals. Please reach out. Like it would be instrumental in your dog's long-term well-being. Amazing. I Um, think that's a, and I, th- I think there's just so many, like, again, this is where I get to learn so much getting a new puppy. Like you would think that's like, I've got a new puppy. That's awesome. Like I opened the box and this puppy just showed up <laughs> and, 
That's and, how it works. Right. And now I just need to make sure that they're not going to chew on my couch and pee all over the place. And that's where it ends as a dog parent. Um, but there's more there. I mean, there's, and I think that's where our mind is shifting a little bit, um, on what else can we do? What are the things that it's going to prevent? What is it going to help in the long run? Like if like simply increased socialization, how does that impact things down the road? And I actually have a, a kind of a similar question. We're going to hit as soon as we come back from this break, um, about that in particular and how we need to start seeing vets as a, um, a, a, a more of a routine care as opposed to just emergency care. So right when we come back, I'll give you a sec to kind of stew that through your brain and then we'll go over that. Okay, so welcome back. So we were just sitting here talking about um, the socialization and getting dogs involved. But one of the things that I kind of was eye-opening to me as I've gone through my journey being in the uh, animal world, and I'm, to be honest, I'm guilty myself, um, we don't visit the vet for just routine checkups. Like, like and it, I've always just been like, oh, if something goes wrong, now we should go to the vet, but we don't just go like, it's not like going to the dentist or going in for your, your, you know, when we have kids, like, like you get a whole list of things at the beginning of having kids, like you're going to go in on this date, you're going to go on in this date, and then you're going to go on this date. We don't do that with dogs. At least the, the novice dog owner, you know, doesn't, what are some, um, like maybe like some benefits, like if, if, if people were to get into that routine, maybe a story that you've like, if somebody would have just been coming in routinely, we would have caught this and it would have solved these issues. Like we just got done talking about the same thing with socialization. If we would have done this, it would have increased all of these Mm -hmm. different things over here. What about just like, how often should somebody be coming in to see the vet, even with a healthy animal? Yeah. I think ideal world from what we know based on research currently is at least an annual exam. And that just kind of gives us a baseline of checking in how are things going, how are behavioral things going, how is the health of the animal, what's changed, what's new. Um, we're starting to offer a lot of just routine blood work screenings at those, and we can pick up on early issues with kidneys, with thyroid, and things like that that would otherwise n- probably not be rectified or noticed until they become more symptomatic down the road. Um, and just an annual exam is a great chance to shoot the breeze and say, hey, nothing's wrong. Fluffy's cool. And then we know. We as vets right. like to just know, like, hey, we've not seen Fluffy in like three years. Is, is everything cool? Like, yeah, that's either really good news or that's bad news because Fluffy's departed and is on the other side of the rainbow bridge. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We, so like- we have pets of our own and we check them out routinely and we sometimes come across things that we otherwise wouldn't have noticed until they were more of an issue. We just noticed our little terrier has got a broken tooth that we need to sort out and get treated. But you know, when is she next to for her vaccines that she'd be going in for a proper exam? I don't know. Someone else has that on record. (laughs) See, and like, that's what's so tough. I remember growing up, um, like we had a, 
labs growing up when I was a kid and I would go into the into the field and I would literally just throw balls or rocks or I would do anything and like Katie and Misty that's that was their names they would just run and they would grab things and they would bring them back and um again so I've heard the the wives tales or the whatever you want to call it that you know dogs have this immense tolerance for pain and all this stuff and so they don't flag things the way that we do as humans so there could be a lot of things that our animals are dealing with that they are going through pain, but they're just so happy to be around us that they they cover it up and they can deal with it better and all these things. Not, How do we not know? To interrupt you. Yeah, I think generally we as humans anthropomorphize a lot. We project a lot of like human traits on our animals. Thank you, David. And we don't do a great job acknowledging their subtle signs of pain. And mm. The research has bared out that everything from like jellyfish on up have pain receptors. Like pain is not unique to us as humans. Like dogs and cats totally feel pain. Um, and a lot of the things that get overlooked are like less activity. They're a bit quieter than they usually are. They maybe aren't as interested in their food. They're panting, they're pacing. Um, cats might have litter box issues and so many things can be pain that we can attribute to like, oh, ain't no big deal. And Jason, you're right. Like they, they are so enthused to be part of our homes and families that, you know, the dog with a broken tooth, our terrier will still totally go grab a toy in the yard and play tug of war with it. But that's, right. if I had a broken tooth, I that would not be the situation happening. Um, yeah. I think it's so important too to just point out like, yeah, pain is not unique to us, but what is unique to us is this ability right here our communication. Yeah, we, we can yeah. self-report. We can say, hey, I got a broken tooth. I don't want to play tug of war right now. I want to go to the yeah. yeah. And um, we, as as our animals, humans, need to really advocate for that. I would say that's probably one of the most common things that comes up that people, you know, have kind of dismissed or thought, oh, that's not a big deal. This is going on. And it's like, oh, actually, your dog's got a horrible hip dysplasia and arthritis. Mm. Probably be on some daily medicines for that and maybe lose a little bit of weight and some physio and a whole bunch of other things because your dog is kind of miserable. See, and I think as, as a, as the average pet owner, that's so hard for us to identify sometimes, right? Like, <laughs> like you guys have, like both of you, you have the ability that you're around multiple animals a day so that you have some kind of baseline versus, and like maybe even similar breeds. Like you, you guys have that, like, how, like how do we, as a average pet owner, identify some of that stuff i guess i guess that's really where going in for those routine checkups becomes more important so that we have somebody else getting eyes and and hands on our on our animals to identify some of that yeah um so do you have any on that like what do you what do you tend to come across in your work that you might say hey you should really get that checked out by a vet because it might be pain related and it's not just a simple training thing oh my gosh behavior all the time you know, sudden onsets of aggression are oftentimes a sign of something deeply wrong with your dog, usually thyroid, you know, um, stuff that like we don't even think as just like an average dog. Like before I was a trainer, you know, I mean, well, I, that's a lie because before I was a trainer, I worked at a rescue and then I dog walked and did a lot of geriatric care. So you're really good at like reading signs and seeing things that are a little off. You know, like you talked about excessive panting, like whenever I see a dog panting a lot, I'm like, oh, 
they don't feel good. They're very uncomfortable. Something's wrong, mm-hmm. you know, but even like myself, you know, I just recently last at the end of the year, lost my dog to cancer and diagnosis to death was four weeks. And like, even someone experienced like myself, it's like, I miss the signs because she can't tell me like, Hey, my knee hurts really bad until she started limping. And at that point it was, mm-hmm. you know, the mass was so large it had already metastasized. So yeah, I think there's a lot of things that like, even as a professional, like can be missed. And mm-hmm. that's where like routine checkups are so good. And I always tell my clients, I'm a huge like dental health awareness person for dogs because people like talk to us about, cause I, I talk about it, but I want to hear from a vet. Like why is dental health important? Like plaque, like, tell the, tell the people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, prior to branching out into our, our own practice ownership, I worked for uh, three years at the Humane Society locally. So oodles and oodles of shelter animals. And interestingly, the sheltering community has been doing such a tremendous job with spay and neuter that the population has shifted from like puppies, kittens to older animals that are kind of shifting into their second and third homes for a variety of reasons. And dental health issues were the most common thing that we would see. And Dogs get bad tartar, plaque gingivitis, cats get horrible stomatitis, and none of those conditions are remotely comfortable. And unfortunately, you know, preventative care for dental health, a a pet owner can brush their animal's teeth and we totally recommend it, but most shelter animals aren't, you know, they're getting food, water, shelter, and a lot of love and care, but they're not getting their teeth brushed twice a day. So, um, Yeah. Oral healthcare is super important and the corrective thing for it usually when it gets to a diseased state is an anesthetic dental procedure done by a professional who can x-ray teeth, probe teeth, clean teeth, and remove things that need to get going. So in addition to like pain meds and antibiotics and all the supportive treatment. So how do you, how do you prevent that? That's annual exam and have them teeth looked at as an owner, you can totally check them out and see, I mean, if, if you are a human blessed with, healthy teeth, your animal's teeth ought to kind of look the same, you know, white teeth and pink gums and anything red or inflamed or deposits of tartar or calculus, anything that's mobile or loose definitely needs to be or broken. Or broken. Yeah. Broken, if, if the tooth on the left doesn't look like the tooth on the right, something's not correct there. Yeah. yeah dogs lose teeth too, which I don't think, you know, like when you have a puppy, you expect all the teeth to fall out, but people don't realize their dog has lost teeth. Um, I, you know, what's your stance on non-anesthetic teeth cleaning? How do you feel about that? As well, let's, come back, let's come back to that. We wrapped up our, our last time on the topic. Like we're getting, we're just running with it now. It's amazing. Um, so let's, let's come back to some of that stuff after break and we will answer that question right there. We were just about to dive into the wild and wonderful world of non-anesthetic teeth cleaning. So, you know, as a licensed vet, what is your, what is your opinion on the, on that for maintenance? Yeah. So professional opinion, it, it doesn't do what needs to be done. Um, full disclosure, I've never actually seen it being done. Uh, I have seen animals in the wake of having had a non-anesthetic dental that have come in for a routine visit or for a dental health purposed visit, um, having dental disease that needed an anesthetic dental to correct. 
So, you know, it's a tough one. I don't recall what the laws in our state of Nevada are pertaining to them. I know that I, as a veterinarian, would not recommend that being um, the source of oral hygiene for your pet. So even, so you're saying I would be better off as a pet owner brushing my dog's teeth at home with like doggy toothpaste and a doggy toothbrush than doing like routine non-anesthetic dentals every three to six months. Yeah, I would totally recommend that you as the animal owner take that on. Um, I don't know that there'd be any harm. And I say that with a little bit of reservation and having the non-anesthetic dentals done routinely, as long as you're coming to me annually so I can say, cool, you're doing all those things and your dog needs an anesthetic dental and we can get that sorted. Yeah. Yeah, I've not actually seen like any, to my recollection, I've not seen any harm or injuries done as a result of a non-anesthetic procedure, but that's totally possible as the animal is not, you know, chemically restrained and unconscious and they could get hurt or hurt someone. I think that's totally fair. Yeah, I mean... They're going in there and the teeth, I, um, I know for me, I do do non-anesthetic dentals on my dogs, you know, annually. I don't do it as much as I should do it. Um, but, um, I, I've had really great ones where mm -hmm. there's a vet on site and I get a full report where they're like, you know, oh, awesome. K95 five and 13 are loose and this one's missing and this one's cracked and chipped. And then I have other ones where they're like, everything went great. And I'm like, my 13 year old dog, everything went great. Yeah. Suspicious. You know, I think that's my head <laughs> is that I, I know that I'm licensed and I maintain my credentials and I don't know I don't know how non-anesthetic dentistry is um, regulated. Yeah. Regulated or supervised. So I, I so it's awesome that you go somewhere that gives you a proper report and has a vet on site. And I don't know that, you know, some lay person down the road isn't offering it as well. And they might not do as thorough or attentive of a job. We were joking over the break, which no one got to hear, but that I also may take it up as a side job with my Dremel. <laughs> So, side, hustle. <laughs> side hustle. So yeah. So I guess um, your your official report would be with caution and a grain yeah. of salt. Let me expand on that and say similarly for you know seeing a dog trainer or behaviorist. Same thing. Like know how they're credentialed and how they're regulated because there are innumerable reputable trainers and behaviorists, and then there's some that are not where I'd be sending my dog to. That are just a hobbyist on the weekend with their Dremel. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So good. So, okay. So now I want to know, cause we've, you know, we've talked about everything else, but now I want to know as a veterinarian surgeon, what, like, do you have a, are you, okay. I know what I want to say. Are you, is there, do you have a specialty or are you just like, I do all surgery? Oh, so my title as veterinary surgeon actually stems from, I got my degree in Scotland. And when we qualify as veterinarians there, we qualify as veterinary surgeons. Oh. It applies to the Veterinary Surgeons Act of some year in the past. And that that's what we were. So when I qualified, actually, I was not a, referred to as a doctor in the profession, I'd be a mister, oh. which was like an honorific. And similarly on the human side, a human general practicing doctor would be a doctor, but a human surgeon would become a mister again. 
which is confusing as yeah, I'm lost. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, change. Now, now in the UK and in Scotland, we're doctors. I'm uh, just a doctor here. So I'm a veterinary surgeon by name, but I, I do medicine and surgery. And my deep interest is kind of human animal bond and behavior stuff. So you guys have totally hit my strong points today. Thank you. Yay. <laughs> human <laughs> animal bond. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So, and then I guess, um, the last thing that I would want to talk to you about, which maybe a lot of pet owners don't know about, is the idea of fear-free veterinary care and what that looks like. And do you practice that and do you recommend it? David, the floor. Awesome. Yeah. So fear-free uh, is a, a movement and I, I can't remember the people who started it, but it's um, it's kind of now branched out into the sheltering community. So I, I did some fear-free certification through the sheltering uh, world when I was there. Our practice is not yet fear-free certified. I would absolutely recommend that folks check that out. The, the basic premise of it is um, to be really probably gum up what they're about is it's kind of consent-based. Like your animal comes in for a blood draw. They don't just tackle, fight out of the floor and step it with a needle till they get the blood. They kind of say, hey, buddy, we're going to approach you. We've got a sharp needle here. We're going to gently restrain you and raise your vein and take blood. And at any point in that process, if the animal is showing signs of anxiety or fear, they kind of like pump the brakes back off a bit and and redirect their approach. And honestly, as a practitioner, I would far rather have the animal on board with what we're doing than just having to physically overpower them. Like, that's not cool. That doesn't build trust in a relationship with your vet. That doesn't make the animal want to come back for their next blood draw or their next vaccine. Um, and the majority of the time taking that extra few minutes to get some treats or redirect them with a toy and make it a pleasant experience is, is awesome for the whole team. It's great for the owners to be like, Oh, Hey, the dog really enjoyed getting his nails done today. Like, what did you guys do? It's like, Oh, we, we literally like had a, a can of cheese whiz. That, that's all it took. Um, yeah. Huge proponent. Um, especially for cats. If anyone out there has cats or has tried to um, has tried to assertively care for a cat in any way that the cat wasn't fully on board with, mm. they've got like teeth and claws at all corners and ends. So you can physically restrain them, but it's far easier if they're on board with what's happening. You will live longer as a as a veterinarian, I think, if you kind of <laughs> heed the warning signs earlier rather than just plowing forward. What are your thoughts I, on, uh, sorry, like, cause it, it kind of ties into the same thing. Um, CBD when like Ooh. is, <laughs> and yeah. are you allowed to have an opinion? Yeah. So totally. Um, CBD as derived from hemp cultivars, um, is, is permissible to use as an animal supplement. It's permissible now, at least in the state of Nevada for us to discuss with people, which is awesome. There are certified cannabinoid consultant not sure what they're actually called but there is a certification program now where um i think it's a lot of licensed veterinary technicians and such are going through to be able to more informed discuss with people the spectrum of things that are available so cbd is a, a great tool um it is one of a, a plethora of cannabinoids of compounds and hemp plants and terpenes and other things uh what I would say is if you're going to do it, talk with your vet, 
Um, there are like milligram per kilogram dosages that are appropriate for different conditions and especially wherever you source it from because it tends to be a supplement, not a licensed pharmaceutical. Uh, if the company cannot supply you with a, a certificate of analysis whereby they break down what is in it, I would not recommend that product. Just because you might be getting nothing or you might be getting something that you didn't bargain for. Sure. Or a lot of extra somethings. Yeah. Do you see it as a, as a pretty significant health benefit though? Like even like, so um, let's say I I do have a high anxiety animal coming into the vet. Like we were just talking about Um, like that's, that's right where my brain went because there's certain animals that it is stressful, especially like when we're talking about rescues and things like that, that we haven't been in control of those experiences since they were puppies and, Mm -hmm. and they've gone through all of these different steps. And they were manhandled at their last vet. Right. Yeah. Um, that my, again, my layman mind says, oh, you know, we'll, we'll get him some CBD and that'll chill him out and all that kind of stuff. Do you like, is that, am I on the right track there? Yeah. Um, anxiety is totally something for which CBD, uh, does work. They are now because of how it's nationally federally been permissed or not permissed to do research. The research is starting to come out. So they are looking at it at different conditions now, I believe anxiety has, has been confirmed, totally helps. There are a whole slew of uh, supplements and counter conditioning trainings and desensitization things that you can do to help your animal have a more pleasant vet visit. And CBD is totally in the mix there, um, as would be talking to your behaviorist about, hey, what if we don't like this? What can we do? Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of supplements and pharmaceutical intervention pre-visit to make it easier on my day and your pet love that love that love that love it so much good stuff well i think that's our show for today right guys that's it thank you david i have my my closing uh dog dad joke ready oh boy are you guys ready (laughs) as i'll ever be jason it's We'll, we'll see how this one goes. We'll see how this one goes. I feel outnumbered. There's another dog dad in the room, so I feel like... All right, go ahead. Okay, ready? What What's a dog's favorite instrument? The trombone. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you... I feel like you emphasized the wrong part of the word there because my brain was like, a trom, what's a trom? And then it was the bone that I was... <laughs> supposed to be focusing in on so i think delivery maybe hey we'll clean it up david next next time we'll have a we'll have his jokes in order sounds good (laughs) thank you both thank you thank you so much this was awesome you got it all right i just want to take one quick second to thank david one more time the amazing veterinarian surgeon who came on with us today to chat about everything from homelessness to desensitization to uh dog training so that was awesome uh any products that uh we talked about today that may be of interest to you will of course always be listed in the show notes and on the dogishpodcast.com please make sure that you're checking us all out on social media and uh you know uh all that good stuff dogish we're at dogish podcast on instagram and also if you're not already subscribed you should definitely be subscribed so that you get weekly updates when we come out every tuesday with new and exciting topics for all of you pet parents and if there's something that we're not talking about that you're like hey guys why are we talking about this tell us we want to know so that we can talk about it with you and for you thanks so much for tuning in we'll see you next week bye guys